Welcome. <clears throat> um, my name's Peter Goldsworthy, and uh, it's my uh, privilege. I thought it was an echo in a, in a soprano voice, but um, it's my privilege to chair today's session about a remarkable book, uh, The Silence Between Us. Ossian Campbell and Cecile Barral, a daughter and a mother, and Professor Patrick McGorry AO. Uh, first, we acknowledge the Kaurna people, the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. We recognise and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs, and relationship with the land. We acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Kaurna people living today. You know, I'm tempted to say we, sh we acknowledge also that the land between the Carpathians and the Don Basin is the traditional land of the Ukrainian people and they're threatened by an equally terrible colonisation right now. <clears throat> Recolonisation. Well, look, um, I'm going to introduce uh, our guests um, uh, briefly and then... Uh, we're going to have a mixture of readings and conversation, and we'll leave plenty of time for questions. Um, so, Cecile Barral is the mother of three adult children, a grandmother, a gardener, a bush lover, a journal keeper, and a psychotherapist with over 25 years of experience specialising in complex developmental trauma. She has a special interest in the use of writing to hope to help process traumas, and we'll be coming back to that a bit. She emigrated from Europe to Australia in 1980 with a backpack, 100 bucks, and her first child in her belly, hoping that distance from a family plagued by mental health problems would protect her and her to be born children. She learned the hard way about intergenerational trauma and believes that working through her personal wounds has helped her be become a good therapist herself. Ossian Campbell is Cecile's third child, and frequently wonders how Cecile survived living in a tent for a year with three children under three. She herself has three children and a beautiful wife and is a proud and passionate midwife. She finds watching babies take their first breath incredibly life-affirming after her struggles with mental health and a major suicide attempt in her teens. And it was a serious attempt, and we'll come to that too soon. Before becoming a midwife, Ossian completed a psychology degree with honours and dabbled in less interesting jobs in mergers and acquisitions. I don't know if you wonder if she should have stayed in <laughs> mergers and acquisitions. Our third guest is, is uh, Professor McGorry. Up until last week, a few days ago, I believed that Patrick was going to be in Japan and would be on a Zoom, zooming in on a screen behind us. So I'm very pleased that thanks to advances in technology, He's here as a very lifelike 3D hologram. <laughs> as I'm sure you're aware, he's the former Australian of the Year, an honour bestowed on him for his services to youth mental health. He's published an enormous uh, <coughs> research body in most of the major medical and psychiatric journals in the English-speaking world, at, at least. He's probably been the single most important advocate on behalf of youth mental health in this country for some years in particular the setting up uh, of the Head Start program, of which many of you, I'm sure, are aware. Uh, Peter Goldsworthy is a part-time GP. <laughs> well, look, uh, and, and I, I did feel, you know, coming into this, how, how would I... Uh, how would we deal with some of the issues in this? I ran, an, I ran it, uh, the book 
past uh, my younger daughter, who's a psychiatrist, and, and she was a great help. But I, I have worked in drug and alcohol rehab for many years and as a GP, and of course, in general practice, you see far too many suicides and uh, suicide attempts, in the, you know, certainly in the course of decades, and I mean, one is too many. And, but I don't claim to be any kind of expert. I'm not sure how you can ever be an expert in it. Um, there's always things to learn, and I've certainly learned a lot from this book, uh, learning to, just listening to this book, and listening is what it's often about. Uh, but I'm going to invite uh, Pat, to, um, who in his introduction to the book, uh, said it's a book that uh, maybe all mental health workers, as well as you know, perhaps family members, should read. And I'm just going to ask him to elaborate a little bit on that before we, we move on to Cecile and uh, Ocean. Okay, thank you, Peter. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, well, first of all, I'd just like to say what a privilege it is to, to be part of this. And Cecile and Ocean and I have done this on Zoom before, but it's great to do it in real life, as, as, uh, as Peter said. And um, couldn't be a better time to be doing this, actually, than right now as we're emerging from COVID. I think every single Australian especially those of us that have been in lockdown for, for any length of time, realise the fragility of mental health. Finally, I think we're starting to understand how central it is to our existence and how you can't really live uh, a fulfilling life or even, a, even any kind of life unless you are mentally healthy. And, and periods of mental health, they, you can't see it, but this book helps you feel it really I, I just it's, in, it's just one of the most amazing books I've, I've read a lot of self-help books I've read a lot of books about people's personal journeys but this is unique absolutely unique um, which is why when um, Oshan and, and Cecile got in touch with me and asked me to read it and and, and maybe comment on it and um, it was just I'm so I'm so grateful to you both you know because I, I also learned a lot from it and and one of the things I learned is the way they've actually um, described their relationship in relation to mental ill health and mental illness. Um, um, and that, that is, I've never seen that done before actually. And um, it's also produced a therapeutic effect as well that we, we'll probably talk about. And, uh, and the, the courage that they showed in actually going on that journey, but also write, the writing journey as well was also, we always say people are brave if they share their story. I don't think we should say that because you know, it's just part of human existence to, to experience mental ill health just, as, just like it is to experience physical ill health. It's just something we can't avoid, actually. Nobody is going to be immune, really. It used to be thought, well, that's those people with mental illness and then the rest of us are mentally healthy. That's not the case. You know, if you look at the studies now, it's showing that maybe 84% of people by the time you reach the age of 45 will have had a period of poor mental health. So it's, it's really, we've got to accept that. And, um, and it can be quite serious and life-threatening, like, like uh, Oshan's story. And uh, so we've got to take it seriously. And that's the more general point. But this book is very, very special. And, and um, I think everyone should read it, not just mental health professionals, but everyone should read it. And um, mental, health, mental health professionals in particular, because as, as is captured in the book, and also uh, in real life, we've got to rethink the way we work you know as mental health professionals and Cecile I'm sure could comment on this too we, we as well as the skills that we have we, we've got to be different in the way we, we relate to people with mental illness and mental ill health and a bit different from the way we have been and we, in Victoria we have a Royal Commission which showed that the, the need to change you know, and 
doesn't mean we, we lose anything. We've we got to gain something here, and I think this book is very, very important. So everyone, everyone especially mental health professionals and, and health professionals, GPs should read it too, Peter, shouldn't they? Yeah. yeah. Um, look, thanks, Pat, and we'll, we'll be inviting Pat to, um, to take part in the conversation more and more as we get into the book. And also feel free to ask questions of Pat as, uh, as well as Asiana and Cecile uh, during question time. Look, um, the book begins... Look, a few years ago I said to one of my cancer patients that I was planning to write a book about my own cancer, and he said, uh, make sure you write the ending first. And, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, write a happy ending. And uh, I said, well, that is spoil the suspense. But uh, in, in this book, uh, Cecile has actually written the ending first. And I, because of the time of joy, I, I, I think... And, and that's the way the book leads us in... I, I, I think we'll, we'll hear that ending first. Uh, so I've invited Cecile just to read her opening and then we'll move into the book proper. Cecile. Okay. So this is a prologue to the, to the book um, and it's about birthing. The family room was softly lit with candles. Everything was tidy. The dining table had been pushed to the side to make room for the birthing pool and Guru Mool was playing in the background. You and Sarah had created an atmosphere of peace to welcome, we have no idea who yet. And there you were, in your thick navy blue dressing gown, totally focused on relaxing the best you could with each new contraction. Sarah, right there with you, soothing and encouraging. You, my daughter, who 15 years ago was so silent, who shut me out, who couldn't see the point in living, but is now surrounded by so much love and life, about to birth a baby at home, as I birthed you. I had always wished, but never dared to hope that this would be the life I would get to see you living. My role last night was to get little Dominique to sleep and stay in the bed with him through, through your labor. <coughs> Sorry. I could not sleep, Ocean. My ears and eyes were with you, as you heard Sarah, as I heard Sarah and the midwives encouraging you, and you groaning, humming to yourself, showering, puking in the toilet. Then, that's how it is, huh? Then, around 5 a.m., the noises suddenly changed. A wave of louder encouragement followed by a chorus of exclamations, the head is out. At that moment, Océane, I could not stay away any longer. I came out of Dominique's room, and there you were, sitting in the birth pool, full of bloody water, your exhausted body reclining against its edge. You were holding a viscous, viscous, viscous little something on your chest. Oh, the expression on your face, Oceanette, cycling to pure bliss, laughter, tears, disbelief. I did it, I did it, oh, my baby. As I went to cradle your head with both my hands and give you a kiss of pure motherly love, my silent words were, my daughter, has given birth to her own tiny, perfect daughter. Life has won. 
there's nothing quite as healing as a nativity. Um, I, you know, we, I think we find over and over again. Um, I guess before we get into uh, uh, the, the book proper, the darker heart of the book, I, I'm very interested in how it came to be written and uh, that process uh, and how, as you read it, and I hope you will, the stories particularly of assault, sexual assault and of family trauma that emerge, emerge slowly uh, as if um, we, we, the reader, are, are listening to a, a kind of... Um, if we, if we are almost, as the psychotherapist, taking part in this process, it's emerging as if over many, many sessions. But maybe the, tech, the technical aspects of how it started first and then maybe the philosophical aspects. Uh, what's Yeah, um, it started in my head and I realised as I was walking every morning that I was actually telling this story in my head and I would nearly start at the beginning and depending how long I walked would change how far through the story I got, but it was again and again and again. And I realised I had diaries from this time in my life and I had sneakily discovered that Cecile also had diaries that she'd written <laughs> about me. And I realised eventually that I had to get it out of my body. It was so heavy still, even though I felt like I had moved on, even though I was in a good place in my life, that trauma was still bubbling away in there. And I said, my mum and I are great hikers together and it, um, we rebuilt a lot of our relationship hiking. And on one walk, I said to Cecile, I want to, I think we should write about this and I think it should have both our voices because the voice in my head was a letter to my mum to explain my side of it and, and asking her for her side of it. And when we decided to, to do it, and, and my mum is very good at knowing when she should just say yes to me. And, just <laughs> and I just sat down and, and I'd, I'd had destroyed a lot of my diaries, but I still had a lot of emails and remnants of, of my entries and it was very easy to put myself back in that headspace. And I probably wrote 70,000 words in about three weeks, just poured out of me. And my morning walks became so much more peaceful without that voice in there. And my mum and I, my mum had actually written her, her diary out more thoughtfully already as a way of processing her trauma and sharing with some close friends. So she'd done hers, and once I did mine, we, we exchanged and were just blown apart by how often we had written about the same conversation with the same nurse in the hospital, or the same interaction with someone, or the same memories that got stirred up in that time and that healing, you know, weeks afterwards. And we just, we were just blown away and we, we went to a writer's centre and we put it together and read it out loud to each other. And by the end of the week, it was a book and we emailed Patrick on day three or four and when he wrote back that day, we were just like, whoa, this is, this is something. And I think we both realised that we had to take it somewhere. It was, it was bigger than the two of us. Um, so, so the... Uh 
addition you sent to Patrick was it already spliced in, in alternate sort of yeah. viewpoints? I hate to think how draft it was, but it was an alternative. It perhaps was spliced already. Very we'll, long. Perhaps we'll ask him <laughs> if he recalls that coming across his desk. Yeah, yeah, yeah what, I, I do. Um, I mean, pe people send me things all the time, right? But this really stood out and, and uh, you know, have to make time to read things and because people had gone to all that huge, uh, I don't know, you just heard what it was like, you know, um, and, and understanding that's the case, you have to give it maximum respect. So I did, I read it and I, I was, uh, yeah, and uh, as Ashan said, we really just encouraged them to kind of take it to the next level, you know, which they obviously did in a superb way. Mm -hmm. So in the next 10 years, we're a little slower than that first. <laughs> well, then, you know, be, uh, I mean, uh, in your epilogue, you talk about when you actually get, it's, it's going to be published, and there's a whole new perspective, and that's what will the family think of it? And uh, I'm going to quote, just quote here, um, sharing the manuscript with my family turned out to be like throwing a litre of petrol on a spark, <laughs> and the small amount of cohesion we had crumbled, uh, sort of, that we once had crumbled. Um, how did you negotiate that and uh, that particular? It was incredibly painful and difficult. Yeah. It felt like, I think over the 10 years of, of working on this draft, getting the courage to send it to other people, sending it to friends first, receiving such beautiful feedback, then going a bit further afield. We had built over time, you know, our, our courage to do this yeah. and, and to hearing the feedback. So many people said, please publish this, yeah. this is so important. So we'd built up all this courage and, and strength and then that petrol bomb that went off was explosive and very, you know, I, I heard Grace Tame speak yesterday, which is like mind-blowing, but she talked about these moments in your life where you're re-traumatized and where these patterns repeat. And that was, in a way, this re-traumatizing of being once again silenced. And it was really thank you to the team we had built around us, our beautiful publisher and editor and agent who carried us over that fire, to be honest, yeah. and got us to the other side of that. Did the ramifications, uh, Cecile, reach back to France and, the, and the relatives in France of publishing um, the book? Actually, um, my siblings have been really grateful mm. about it. They were shocked because they had no idea. Yeah. I kept it very close to my chest. Yeah. I'm so not the only silent one in the family. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they were shocked, but they, yeah, it's created a warmth, actually. I mean, it's a problem all writers have. Even fiction writers get into trouble, but this is particularly, obviously, confronting for some members. So I think we'll, I'll ask Ossian now to, uh, and Cecile initially, to read a passage from uh, the aftermath uh, of the suicide attempt, and uh, that's page 30 and 31. 30 and 31, yeah. So that's, um, that's when I find what's happened and I'm talking to Osean on the phone. She's in hospital. I've been told she's in hospital. This is what's happened. I'm in shock. Uh, and I managed to reach through to her uh, on the phone. The utter pleasure and utter pain of the moment I hear your voice you, alive. 
yes, it is your voice on that phone line. I recognize it, and yet I'm not sure who you are anymore. Ocean, what's happened? I say as softly as I can. How did you find out? Oh, you can put words together. You say you're waiting for surgery on your hands. You've damaged things? A bit. Sounds so simple, almost matter of fact. You ask me what has happened. How do I answer that? What has happened? Instead, I say, how did you find out? By which I mean, how do I get out of this? What do I do now, Cecile? I can mechanically tell you about the surgery I am waiting for. Somehow, it is the easiest thing to talk about. And part of me also wants you to know that this wasn't a half-hearted attempt. I am embarrassed that I failed, in the same way that I would be embarrassed if I failed a subject or got chastised for doing a bad job at work. You speak again, and it is the quietness of your voice that undoes me. You want to come and see me. I don't know how to tell you that I can't cope with that. As good as it is hearing a familiar loving voice, I can't cope with your sadness. It is what I was trying to say in my suicide notes. The thought of the grief my dying would cause you doesn't counterbalance my grief at living. It just adds to it, turns it into my own grief. That's why your love is not enough to make me live. I can't feel it anymore, Cecile. I can only add your sadness to my own. I have spent so much of my life protecting you, doing what was necessary to shelter you. I can't tolerate your needs now. I can feel the pain that I am causing by saying no. I tell you that you could come visit after the surgery, maybe. I wonder if I will make it that long. I would prefer to slip into death before facing the pain I have caused you and everyone else. Inside, I am willing my liver to give up. I am not worth it, I want to tell it. I think back to you crying and falling apart when I was seven or eight years old. I am angry that I had to witness your sadness. I was the child, you were the mother, but that's not how it felt, Cecile. I need you to accept that my needs are not aligned with your needs. You need to visit me, I can feel it in your voice, but the only strength I have is from my independence and that will be devalued if I admit to needing you. It's a very powerful piece of writing, and in particular some of those um, insights, like the embarrassment, um, which we, we would think is very common, but a very strange sensation maybe to someone who, who has never been in contact with these situations. But, in some ways, this book's healing two generations uh, of you know, trauma. And Cecile, uh, I wonder if you'd respond to that and how you felt. Uh, it must have been very difficult. Talk about revisiting things in writing the book, how you felt when you, you were having to look back on your own past. And um, well, I mean, I was so shocked when this happened. Yeah. Uh, but I come from a family where I had been exposed. I had a, a sister who had suicided. I had had quite a few of my sisters um, in psychiatric wards for some time, heavily medicated, like some are still really like a bit like vegetable from the medications they received and the electroshocks and so on. Uh, so it was like 
Ah, oh, there's a part of me rebelling now. I took my children to the, as far as you could on this planet to protect them from feeling a bit doomed, you know, feeling a bit, uh, if I take them away, we'll be okay. And so it was quite hard to accept now. Intergenerational trauma doesn't have geographical boundaries, really. But uh, just reading that again now, Halcyon, are you, is it so far distant now that uh, you don't feel uh, that resurrection of the traumas or the feelings? Of yeah, I, f I feel really okay talking about it, thank you. Yeah. I have gotten so much out of the process of writing and in a different way publishing, I think. Writing was really about processing the trauma itself yeah. and healing our relationship and for me that that writing and putting it together and working on it together was about our relationship and and improving that and you know worlds apart now and then the publishing was really about overcoming that residual shame that I thought had gone but hadn't yeah. and that's um, you know I can still feel it I, I don't think I'll ever stop getting goosebumps sure. when I read certain parts of the book um, but it's, it's, in a, it's in a way that is heartwarming and reflective in a positive way of how far I've come, how far we've come. And, and in a, you know, I feel proud when I look back on where I was and where I am now, and that's a, that's a lovely feeling. Yeah. Oh, well, these events were in 2002, by the way, I think. It's, mm. And uh, I, should, I don't know if I mentioned that. That's how, just to give it perspective. Um, look, I'm thinking, um, you know, there's uh, this, this a bit that seemed almost like terribly dark humour. Um, as part of the attempt, uh, Ocean had cut her, her wrist so severely that she'd severed tendons and uh, damaged bone. And so she was facing an operation. And... Um, uh, I think this maybe some metaphor for not just problems in the public health, the underfunding of the public health system, and, but to, that might apply to some of the issues you had psychologically as well. But um, you, you almost had your appendix taken out by mistake. You <laughs> said you want to talk about. Perhaps a little. Uh, it was one of those most surreal moments. I'd, I'd arrived in one hospital. Uh, in emergency and been moved to intensive care until I was stabilised. And then after about three days, I'd, when I was stable, I was moved to another hospital for the surgery and they kept bumping me, as is the, the way in public health. And I kept thinking, well, that's fine because I'll just die and, you know, suits me. And I, you know, kept being nil by mouth and so I was absolutely, you know, wasting away sort of physically. And then finally, at one in the morning, I get wheeled into the pre-op area, and I'm lying there, and um, they, into, I don't know who it was, a doctor or somebody came and slapped this, you know, folded down on my legs and said, so Sally, we're here to take your appendix out. <laughs> and I, kinda, I, I had to laugh, but it was that sort of thing of like, oh, but there's nobody here to laugh with me, and you know, I'm all alone, and I sort of feel like a child, even though I'm kind of acting like an adult. And I said, oh, my name's not Sally, and I, don't, I think my appendix is fine. <laughs> <laughs> of course, they were mortified. And now that I'm a midwife and I work 
in hospitals and I see actually all the checks that we do and the timeouts before a cesarean and all these things, I just, I laugh that this could happen, you know, 18 years ago. Well, you did have to repeat your story again and again to, you know, psychiatric residents, psychiatric registrars, and then finally you found, and sort of, uh, all of whom seem to want to seize on a different, you have a very eloquent way of putting it, you know, some different cause or trigger, uh, until you found a very sympathetic uh, psychiatrist and a Dr. Martin. Um, but I'm thinking, thinking of, you came out of this, uh, the, the intergenerational trauma, you alienated from your mum, but the trigger was actually a sexual assault. And uh, I wonder if you could, and there was a, there's one particular um, passage, I've just a short passage I've asked you to read. It was at the university college you were at, and uh, you, when you were interviewed finally by the, uh, the master, uh, I think, of the college, and, uh, and, and I'd, I'd just ask you to read that short passage. Yeah. It's a kind of cautionary tale of, anyway, it'll speak for itself. <laughs> In so these I, times. I had been living on campus at a college and they'd actually kicked me out of the college when I'd attempted suicide because they saw it as a, a breach of the rules to do such a thing. <laughs> and um, it was one of the, the little things that re-sparked my fighting spirit, shall we say. And um, it brought up all this thing that they had actually done me a massive injustice in how they had dealt with a sexual assault that had happened at the start of the year that had been this kind of slight trigger of this downhill spiral for six months before my attempt. And so I went back and I was, I was trying to get them just to repay the, my, unpaid, my, my paid tuition sorry, for the rest of the term. And, um, and so I'd organised this meeting and I had a support person with me. So I'll just read a small section. The dean and the master obviously thought Anne-Marie was some weird, hippie, crazy lady. But it was great that they couldn't put anything over her. So many times during the meeting I thought, thank God she is here. Not only as a witness to all that was being said, but also because of her clarity and the sharpness and intelligence of her responses. The dean in particular was in bullying mode throughout the whole meeting. The master has a calmer, more controlled personality but is cold and hard as cement underneath. He had to pull the dean back a few times when he started getting too openly aggressive, although he wasn't able to prevent him making one appalling comment at the end of the meeting. We had been talking about how the college had responded to my allegations against Seth, how they had not offered counselling or suggested going to the police. They said they were just respecting my wish that no one else know about it. Anne-Marie said that when a young woman undergoes a trauma, she might be scared and need privacy, but that doesn't mean you can't bring in support for her. She said they may, that maybe they needed to use more imagination. Anyway, the dean said something about me not expressing clearly enough what I wanted, and that it reminded him of a case in South Australia where a judge had said publicly that sometimes when females say no, they really mean yes. The dean actually had the gall to say that perhaps it wasn't fair that the judge got in trouble in the media for his comment, because it seemed that sometimes females are confused about what they want, like me, he added, and when females say no, it is clear that sometimes they do mean yes. Phew. Well, well. well, that speaks for itself. Um, Cecile, I mean, given uh, your own history of uh, back in France of sexual trauma as well, did, uh, if you don't mind me 
asking, how, when you were working together, this must have evoked a lot of uh, um, difficulties for you too in, in memories. Uh, yeah, it did, and maybe that's uh, part of, um, I'm actually writing my life story, so I've written a lot about my own abuse from a young age and then repeated later on, and I think it's connected, you know, mm. it's like we, I find to really go over traumatic experiences in our life, actually, although some people say, no, you know, I want to forget about it, for me, Remembering and writing is a wonderful way of remembering when you decide to recollect, really. Uh, I find it part of healing. It's like a, a self-therapy in a way and very powerful, different from talking, you know, I had years of uh, very deep therapy. But what I've become aware of is you protect your own therapist from the really, uh, you don't want to, to uh, overwhelm them. You know? And if they're sensitive, they feel what you bring them. And so I was very aware of also sort of protecting my, my own therapist. Pat, uh, I'm wondering if, given Ocean's difficulties, um, you know, following admission and, uh, uh, and the, the lack of well, there's, there's never enough support for mental health. I know you've come to respect the system more than at the time, having worked it yourself, but Pat, do you have any comments about her experiences back then in... Uh... I, I don't think it's just back then, Peter. Um, I mean, through the pandemic, I've seen a wave of young women come in um, or try to get into the system to, to, be, to get help. And, and uh, first of all, they can't get in because... It, you know, the waiting list have just blown right out, you know. Um, but when they do come in, the only way in is through the emergency department, usually in circumstances like what, what Oshan was talking about. And the superficiality of the response, which is the only response those, those, those venues can actually provide. Mm. It, it, and when you've heard the depth, the complexity, and, the, and the, the skill that would be needed to help people in that situation, you know, um, you, you can, you can, everyone can understand how, how, how much skill and empathy and compassion, and, but depth of understanding and, and, and skill, psychotherapeutic skill, all of those sort of things that Cecile has, has been trained in, that's just not available to people at that point. So the, the response or the experience of the person is, 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 it adds to the trauma, doesn't it? You know, that's what you experienced. It does, and, and it, part of the writing process for me was realising that the hospital system was one of the great triggers of trauma for me. That feeling mm. so powerless, so not heard, so lost in the system, so unimportant in the system, so judged for what I'd done, that all those things were so damaging to me. And mm. part of the, the retelling of the story in my head and, and you know getting to the point of needing to write it was because I was traumatized mm. by my week, and it was only a week, and you know, people get trapped in that system for months and years again and again, and, and that mm. week was frightful, and one of the, the hardest things for me coming out of the hospital system, and I went into the care of my mum, was my fear of returning, and it took me so long to be brave enough to go back to any sort of therapy in case I said something 
that made them schedule me again. And if I said the wrong thing, or if mm. I described it in the wrong way, I was terrified that I would be put back yeah. and I knew that would be it. That would be the end of me. Mm. I would not miss the second time. Yeah. And it wasn't until the last... Last Dr. Martin. Dr. Martin. Oh, I, I haven't found him yet, but I'm, I'm on a mission. Oh. <laughs> um, I, I promised him when he said to me, he was the 10th psychiatrist I saw in you know, days, and he actually listened to me, which was amazing, and he didn't put his own spin on things or he didn't try to lead the story where he thought it would make sense or more sense. He just let me tell the story as it was for me. And he yeah. heard me, and he heard me say, I need to get out of here. And when he said, yep, let's organize it, and I said, oh, I will call you in a year and tell you that you made the right decision. And uh, I never, I forgot to call him after a year because I was living my best life. And, um, and now he's, who knows where, but anyway, I hope one day I will find him and find be able to say, <laughs> you know, just the biggest thank you for, for my life because I really, owe him a lot for, for seeing me and, and hearing me in that moment. I want to add something there. Yeah, Cecile. Um, um, when Dr. Martin discharged you, he, he said, I need to call mental health in your area so they will keep an eye on you and check on you. And mental health gave a call the next day uh, can I talk to Ocean? Yes. Are you okay? Yes. We'll call you tomorrow. Phone call. Are you okay? Yes. Okay, we'll call you tomorrow. Okay. That's it. No more calls. So she could have been doing whatever. They, they, I think they just needed to tick. They had called, you know, and I felt that uh, uh, failure. I know you were also care. ambivalent because... Um, apart from Dr. Martin apparently got his knuckles wrapped because you weren't supposed to be discharged yet. But I might ask uh, Pat to comment on, because yeah. we know the resources are stretched. And uh... Well, well, well that, that is the big thing. I mean, um, there has to be a safety net for people, you know, because no one, no one and, and would want someone in Ocean's situation to die. That's the thing that people are, uh, are totally and rightly concerned about, you know, mm. even though she wants to die, you know? So how do you deal with that? I mean, it's not like treating a diabetic. I was talking to Peter about, you yeah. know, p earlier parts of my career when it's so simple to treat a diabetic, you know? But to treat someone, to, to help someone in that situation where they don't want help and, and yet they're going to die if, if you don't do something. And then this is the response, a phone call, you know? Or, or as they say in the, in the public mental health system, a drive-by, you know? You know? Yeah. I mean, it's just so superficial. But th they can't do anything else because they've got... In northwest Melbourne, we have a thousand young people on our wait list to get into to get into our youth mental health services at the moment. Yeah. The pandemic's made it a lot worse, yeah, yeah. and and so all they can do is phone calls. I mean, yeah. this is completely unacceptable, yeah. and, and it's still the case. You know, so we 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 we've got the right models and approaches, but they're just made not made available to people. Yeah, yeah I think that's and um, that so sums it up. So what can be done? Well, vote. We've got the models, we just need the money. Politicians have got to address it. But they, they, they put other issues like aged care, NDIS, everything knocks mental health off the perch. Um, ten years ago it looked like we might get something serious done about that, but it's been incremental. We need 
something, it's got to be a top priority, especially in the recovery from COVID. And mm. I know that I'm talking to macro here, but, but to, to, the macro has got to be dealt with so the micro, the, the person actually gets the right care. We had a Royal Commission in Victoria, and that's the sort of thing that we needed. And $3.8 billion is now being put in, into building a new mental health system. The problem is we can't find the workers now. We can't find the people. So it's got to be top priority in, in, in social health and social policy and not be pushed aside by one issue after other. Submarines, you name it, everything pushes mental health aside. Yeah, and I've, I've been hearing this from Alex, my daughter, for years too. Mm. Um, look, I think uh, we'll have a quick reading, which is from near the end of the book. Uh, when uh, Cecile and Ocean went on a, a seven-day hike together, and it's quite a beautiful place, I think, to rest before we... Uh, so we've done a bit of an arc, but um, before we get on to questions. So um, I think... Uh, how did we decide to do this? We didn't. We didn't. We thought we'd talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to quote and let you talk. Well, look, um, but it was, it's, Cecile's got a wonderful little passage there about... Uh, just when you're eating, why don't you read, <laughs> when you were, so we go for this is a, seven days. Yeah. A full pack hike together along the really southern uh, coast. Um, we've shared long talks and the silent intimacy of savoring each mouthful of our buckwheat, dried carrot and pea stew by the campfire with tiny marsupials coming to share our meal. We've shared the intimacy of a tiny tent with only room for our two bodies and the shock when a funnel web jumped out of your sandal as you were slipping your foot into it to go for an early morning pee. Today we're doing the lighthouse to lighthouse part of the walk, a well-marked track without climbs or rock scrambling. We have left our big packs at the camp where we will return tonight and the ease of the day is opening the space for deeper talking. Your openness of last night is still with me. And I'll just read a little passage. There is something about the rhythm of hiking. The huge, heavy backpacks slow us down, forcing us to concentrate exquisitely on each step we take. There is such intensity in making sure that we don't tread on a snake, twist an ankle, trip on a branch, in keeping our balance as we leap from rock to rock or wade through the strong tide of an estuary pulling us to the sea. Somehow, that intensity and reliance on listening to my instinct makes everything so much clearer. It feels like I have opened up a little portal between my internal voice and my external voice, and I am now able to articulate what is going on in my head. I don't have the hesitancy, doubt, secrecy, uncertainty that I have so often had with Cecile. The words just come out. Among discussions of my future career plans, we also talk of my travel plans. I've booked my round-the-world ticket, leaving at the start of May. I am nervous, leaving my comfort zone and my friendships, which feels so solid at the moment, but I'm ready to spend time with just my own company. After so many years of running away from myself, or only speaking hatefully to myself, I am actually excited to just spend a year with me. <laughs> I think uh, that's, that's a beautiful way to end. I mean, the, the hike in, in some ways is a, is a metaphor also for the process of uh, you've gone through and those obstacles and those difficulties. And uh, reading the books, probably, I don't know, a seven hour hike along with the ladies, <laughs> the, the women. But um, perhaps we'll have questions straight away. And 
and to any of our three uh, guests, obviously. Well, I might... Uh, oh, one, one oh, right. Oh, sorry, yes. I think you need, sorry, I sort of mentioned you go to the microphone or there might be a roving one somewhere, but if you go up to the microphone, it'd be fine. Not I haven't read the book yet, but I'm just so grateful that this silence of suicide is um, getting more and more um, of a voice. Um, myself, I have tried to commit suicide quite a few times and I can tell you two times at Flinders, once when I was 19, newly married, um, I was let out without even a follow-up appointment or no one talked to me about it at all, like not parents, not my husband, not, not no follow-up. So that was 1981 and then in 2001, um, I was, I had separated from my husband and I was going to lose my children, which were my life, and I wanted to die. And I thought I'd do it properly. And it was unreal how um, one psychiatrist has told me that it wouldn't have been on purpose, but another psychologist told me it might be, but what happened to me was I had the roughest nurse telling me I was a waste of taxpayers' money. Mm -hmm. um, the drip cost $1,000. This was in 2001. Um, she manhandled me. I was feeling like, like you say, you feel like yeah. you're absolutely helpless in hospital. Um, and it was, it has actually stopped me trying again. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's 20 years ago, but um, to cut a long story short, I found out I have autism at 57, so um, the suicidal ideation that I have, and I've also been sexually abused at, from a six-year-old, um, and then my first relationship, I married the, my husband. But, um, yeah, I just, I just praise Matt Haig for writing um, yeah. Reasons to Stay Alive, and I mm. thought, mm. if only that book had been around mm. when... I was younger, and now there's there's your book, and you. people are still they don't want to talk about it still. Mm. But I'm just grateful that there's a crowd here. You've got a beautiful book that I'm going to read and listen to, and I just want to say things have got to change because that embarrassment that you've um, not succeeded in what you really want to do. Mine wasn't a cry. I wanted to die, and it's just got to change that. People need to be skilled at helping us. Mm. Thank you. Thank, no, you. thank you. And uh, just, just, um, and I'm glad you've you've reached a place. Thanks to further on from that shocking, quite shocking description of the care you received. Uh, look, I might just ask this lady here. I think she was. Would you like to just tell me the question? and I'll repeat it because I think you were you were the next. You're actually next. Okay. No. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, yes, thanks for your, um, your book, and uh, I just wanted to ask two questions. Uh, Professor McGorry was uh, working on, I read an article about a resilience model sort of 
getting to people before they crash, sort of, the research was happening there, particularly with young people. Mm. And that seems to be where the focus should go rather than waiting at the sort of that uh, emergency department. Yeah, we need that. Mm. But the research on supporting people before that, mm. and uh, also, uh, full disclosure, I um, was a mental health nurse, and uh, I'm thinking you need to support, you know, you're saying you can't get the staff, mm. but you need to value those, yeah, the yeah. people there, so yeah. not talking down the, uh, the mental health system all the time. Yeah. And I think that is part of it too. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, start off with the early intervention idea first. Just like any other health condition, mental ill health, um, you've got to identify it at the earliest possible point. And it doesn't mean you, you, you just go and try to um, engage with people when they're just having a bad day. It's, it's not about the worried well or just you know, the human condition. It's about recognising when the earliest signs of a potentially serious mental health problem are really there. And the, pr and the problem is that people come on the scene way too late, you know. Like, it's years after people have first started to struggle um, that they get help. Even for serious mental illnesses like psychosis, schizophrenia, anorexia, you name it. Every single illness has got a long delay, and then it's much more difficult to treat, just like cancer. If you, just imagine if you ran your cancer services like this, that you wait till, till, it, till it actually spreads throughout the body before you start helping people. And in fact, people are sent away with significant mental health problems, life-threatening mental health problems, like you've just heard. They're sent away um, and told to come back when it's more serious. You know? that's, what, that's what they're told. You know? and, and so that horror story that you just heard from this lady over here is still happening. Um, and it's not happening because people are, just want to be punitive or evil. You know? It's just that they can't cope. And, and, and they're coming in, people are coming into emergency departments where people are not properly trained in mental health. Um, and that was probably a nurse that, that spoke to you that wasn't a mental health nurse, quite likely. Mm. I don't know. But, but that's the sort of thing that is happening still. And it's because of the neglect. So they don't have any alternative. So, as you say, people don't go into the mental health system as, 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 as uh, health professionals to abuse people. <laughs> but but the, the side effect of, of the neglect is, is that they are the victims as well. The staff are the victims. It's such a low morale ro role and it's looked down upon in big hospitals, you know, within the big hospital, the psychiatrists and the mental health people are looked down upon by the people running the hospital. So the stigma is right there in, in the medical profession and the health professionals. So you've got to create the conditions where everyone feels like they're in a safe and, and, and fulfilling workplace if they're going to care for people. And the conditions for the workers in mental health are just not like that, mostly. That's why we had a Royal Commission in Victoria. So all of this came right out of the woodwork. You know, the suffering of the patients, the neglect and the abuse that was happening, um, and the, the, the suffering of the workers. So that's got to be fixed. And, and Victoria is, 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 is committed to fixing it. And the, the main problem is trying to get the next generation of people to come into the mental health field. When I, when I said I wanted to train as a psychiatrist after four years of medicine, general medicine, I had my colleagues queuing up to talk me out of wasting my life on those people. That's what they said to me. Doctors said that to me. And that is still happening. I asked a bunch of trainees about five years ago, did you have that reaction too? And yes, they did. So 
We've got a big problem. You know? And it's, like this lady over here said, it's so good that we're talking about this today. Thanks, Joshan and Cecile. People tried to stop us talking about suicide. Even our own colleagues said, if you talk about it, it'll cause some kind of mass contagion and everyone will be jumping off a cliff like a lemming. You know? that, that fear factor inhibits you to talking about this very, very critical issue. So, so it's so great that, coming back to the book, this is paving the way to this, this sort of Thanks. conversation today with hundreds of people here. How, this is so good. Mm -hmm. yeah. Look, uh, thank you, everybody on the panel, for uh, your comments today, and I'd like to thank both of you for writing such a wonderful book. And, you know, the personalisation of stories is you know, the essence of influencing people. Now, so I have two questions. The first, have you given your book to any politicians and what has been their response? <laughs> and the second one, has, have you given a copy of this to the Royal Commission into to events and uh, veterans' suicide? Because that Royal Commission is actually going to bring many of these issues into stark reality. There are repeated stories being told. And the stories of the people in the Defence Force and veterans are exemplars of the failings of the Australian health system. But it is, a prop it is an opportunity to bring a very, very sharp focus to these issues. And, you know, look, I would thank you for your courage, and Pat, I'd like to thank you very much for the way you advocate for these issues. You know, this is a national crisis. Something needs to happen. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Andy. Thank you. There, um, thanks to a discussion in the Green Room just before we started, there is a book on its way to a politician this afternoon, but hopefully more to come. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll, um, I've noted that down because I think that's a great idea and I would love to, to personally deliver some copies to, yeah. Yeah, thank yeah, you. Think, uh, certainly that, uh, that commission and, and uh, the terrible incidence of suicide and, uh, in veterans is going to get more and more... Um, Airplay, if you like, and it become a, a hot issue that will, will probably maybe be able to galvanise politicians who otherwise wouldn't be galvanisable. But anyway, next question. Hi. Um, I've worked in the mental health system and um, I don't work there very much because I just find it intolerable, to be honest. I, I think there's a very deep us and them among mental health professionals. Um, I don't believe that more money will fix it. There's an incredible amount of waste in the mental health system um, in this state. Hopefully this, my face won't be televised or anything. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I just feel really, um, yeah, I just feel like it's a terrible system. I understand people who say, you know, I want to make sure that I, I did it properly so that I didn't have to go back into um, one of those places. I feel that way myself. Um, yeah, they're very depersonalising and they're very pharmacological based, pharmacologically based, which I also have a big problem with. Um, a local one, you can't even go for a walk unless you're in a group of three or something. Um, I mean, walking, like there's evidence for exercise. Um, oh, anyway, yeah, I, I think I've made my point. I'm just so um, disillusioned with the mental what? health system that yeah. I, I just think um, it's got to be about society. It's got to be about... It is about 
um, yes, you're having a bad day, somebody listen to you, somebody be there. I think it, it does start with that. It mm. is about just being there for each other um, what in the I first instance. What I hope is that by having books published and stories, you know, real stories told and shared, and um, that that's going to help reduce that shame and stigma and that silence around this issue. And I think that's how we get cultural change to, to have a mind shift in that us and them and, and the way that it's looked at at the moment is with so much shame. And I, I hope that by being able to normalise and, and you know, the fact that publishers went you know, above and beyond to get this book out there and that we can do this and be invited to places like this, to me is that a sign that things are slowly changing and people are willing to you know, say that S word out loud. And I, I hope that that will be a driver of cultural change. Um. Can I just ask people to put your hand up if you've ever thought about killing yourself? Sorry, that's very confrontational. But... Look, I have to say, you know, every mental health care worker, psychologist, psychiatrist I've ever come across is incredibly dedicated and hardworking and uh, they do their best. But they are, and I think Pat was alluding to the thousands of t teenagers out at Westmead, they're stretched so thin and they're human. Yeah. Could, could, uh, I just, could I just say that this lady's right, though, that cultural change in the mental health system is incredibly important. There are oases of, of, of good culture, and, but they're hard to protect because of the underfunding. You know? The funding is absolutely vital to, to get the funding right, but she's right that funding alone is not enough. You have to re reconceive it in a way, you know, and, and think, think more broadly about people's lives. It doesn't mean that medication and psychological treatments and expertise is not important, but there are other things that are important too, like she mentioned, connection with other people, even with the natural environment, um, a purpose in life. There's lots yeah. of other things that people need apart from just treatment, but they deserve treatment too. You, you, you shouldn't withhold things that are going to work and, 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 and help them. Um, so it's not an either or really, but it's no. a massive task no. as, she, as she was alluding to. Mm -hmm. For the last 38 years, I have been working in the mental health area. Uh, my particular role and special interest has been uh, the family members, particularly mothers and fathers who have had, as is the case with this family here, um, a son or a daughter who has had a serious mental illness. In the course of my work, I was running support groups for family carers whose son or daughter had committed suicide. The incredible anger in those groups was because the family members were not listened to at all. And they claimed that had they been listened to, because they knew what was going on in their, their family, they knew, perhaps they didn't understand what was happening to their sons and daughters, but they went trying to seek help and they did not get it. They were totally ignored. And they say, as a result, the end was suicide of their son or daughter. I'd really like to ask the three of you, has that situation changed? Are family members now not necessarily seen as the people who have caused the mental illness, therefore they're evil and not to be dealt with? Is that attitude changing? Because I'm still hearing stories that I heard 38 years ago, hmm. and I'm frustrated beyond belief by the fact that hmm. very little has changed. Hmm. I'm hoping it's changed in this aspect a little bit. 
Can you comment, Look, please? I, th I think that has to be the last question. I'm sorry. Um, but we'll get, get an answer, perhaps, and we see be, how we... Maybe we'll push the we'll envelope for, the, for that. At, you stay the there. Well, so stay so there. Come yeah. chat to us. And, and then, uh, yeah. um, the truth is, I don't know if that has changed, because I only lived through it 18 years ago. Um, but from my understanding, I think there is more involvement of families with young people in distress. But I think the problem is that then when they seek help, then they're still not heard. Mm. I, I could say um, that, that it's changing. Uh, Mark, Mark knows, you know, who asked the question, I, I know her really well. She's, fought, she's a tireless advocate for just people with mental illness generally, but especially for that issue she raised. But it's definitely changing in the practice within the youth mental health system that we've been trying to, trying to create across Australia through Headspace and we try to get the government to fund a backup system for more complex and persistent problems that Headspace can't deal with. So, so in, those, in those areas, you know, we, we try to build it in as a standard of practice that the families have to be involved unless, unless there's a really good reason not to because they are the scaffolding that, that support the, the young person. Um, and there might be you know, major issues to be dealt with. Often there aren't, actually, often there aren't. Uh, but if there are, you still have to deal with that. You don't just lock the family out, um, as Marg was, was alluding to. So, so, I mean, it makes no sense whatsoever. And, and people can die as a result of them being locked out, as Marg also pointed out. And I've seen that many, many times. So, but you are partly, you're partly right. It's still happening. It's the way professionals are trained. It, it makes their, their life, the professionals' lives easier to do that, uh, I think, as well. So that we've got to look at our practice more generally. Um, but then there's... You can deal with the issues of confidentiality and, and, and independence that Ashan was re referring to quite rightly. And that's a big issue for adolescents. It's a huge issue. They want to be their own people. They, they're fighting to find themselves. So you have to understand that if you're going to work with them. But on the other hand, you have to understand the person that cares most about that person in the world is probably the parent. You know? and, and who else is going to be there if their parent is not involved? And so it's a very, very important issue that Marg has raised there, which is still not resolved, unfortunately. I find it as frustrating as you do. Well, look, um, I, I, as uh, Asian and Cecile will be uh, signing books, um, one quick question. Not a question, a statement. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm a retired psychiatrist and uh, four years ago, and uh, I miss my patients because I like my patients and I do whatever I can to help them, uh, and I think it's, it's, it's a, a sense of connection and uh, friendship, uh, not taking it in, in uh, a way beyond the patient, and uh, I think that's something that I'm, I miss now. Yeah. Thanks, Sandra. Yeah, so, of course. And that's, I mean, the, the compassion in, in the mental health workers is just sometimes stretched so thinly. But uh, look, I'd like, like you in to, to thank again, uh, well, our three guests, but uh, Cecile and, uh, <laughs> and Oceana in particular for their courage. And uh, it is an extraordinary book. And Pat, it's been an honour to have you here, mate, and keep up, the, keep up your advocacy. Thank, thank you very much. much.